The U.S., Iran, and other world powers have now reached a final deal limiting Iran's ability to build a nuclear weapon. In the words of President Obama, every pathway to a nuclear weapon is cut off. But to Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, this deal will go down as what he calls a historic mistake. In 2013, Intelligence Squared U.S. debated whether Israel can live with a nuclear Iran. Questions raised now, would a nuclear Iran pose an existential threat to Israel? And what role does it play in Israel's condemnation of this historic pact? Here's that debate from 2013. It's the nuclear secret that never was that Israel has the only nuclear arsenal in the Middle East. Its leaders have never confirmed it nor never denied it. But one thing they cop to without hesitation is their total rejection of Iran ever getting the bomb. They talk about going to war to stop that from happening because they say that Israel cannot live with a nuclear Iran. Or can it? Yes or no to this statement. Israel can live with a nuclear Iran. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. We have four superbly qualified debaters to argue for and against this motion. Israel can live with a nuclear Iran. Our debate, as always, will go in three rounds, and then you, the live audience, votes to choose a winner, and only one side wins. Our motion is Israel can live with a nuclear Iran. And now let's meet the team arguing for the motion. First, let's welcome James Dobbins. And Jim, you are now at um, RAND, where you are Director of International Security and Defense Policy Center, but in a previous life working with the State Department, you were at the talks for the the conference for the setting up of the state of Afghanistan after the wake of 9-11. You were involved in negotiations that involved the Iranians, and you said that actually the Iranian delegation was helpful in the process. And you, you know that that's not really the reputation that the Iranians normally bring to the table. Well, they were helpful. Um, I think it was a sort of a combination of gratitude and fear. They were grateful that we just knocked off one of their two principal regional rivals, which was the Taliban, and they were fearful that they might be next. It was a genuine opportunity that we flubbed. I'm not going to argue tonight that we still have that opportunity. James Dobbins. And your partner is? Reuven Peditzer. Okay. (laughs) Reuven Peditzer, ladies and gentlemen. Reuven, you are also arguing uh, for the motion that Israel can live with a nuclear Iran. You have obviously a a serious personal stake in this. Uh, You are a resident of the state of Israel. You were a fighter pilot in the Israeli Air Force. Uh, You now write for the Haaretz newspaper on uh, issues of security and military affairs. Um, Reuven, you told us back in 2006, seven years ago, where you stood on this issue when you wrote a piece back then that said, let them have nukes, them being Iran. What sort of reaction did you get back then? There was no reaction whatsoever because you should know that in Israel there are no public debates on nuclear issues. It's a taboo. And if that happened today? The same. Yeah, well, we're going to have a debate tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) Reuven Petitsur. Our motion is Israel can live with a nuclear Iran, and two debaters arguing against it first, Shmuel Bar, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Shmuel, like your opponent, uh, you have that stake of being an Israeli citizen. You also served in war as an intelligence officer. Uh, You now direct studies at the Institute of Policy and Strategy in Herzliya, Israel. Just a short preview of your argument here. Uh, It's sometimes argued the Iranians would be no more interested in a nuclear war than the Soviets were during the Cold War, and they didn't use it. So give us one reason that that argument just doesn't end this debate right now. Since I'm a historian, I've noticed that... uh, 
if during history everybody had acted according to the rational actor model, then most of what we know as history wouldn't have happened. Pearl Harbor wouldn't have happened. Uh, certainly Stalingrad wouldn't have happened. So apparently uh, things happen which are not necessarily because it's in the interest of somebody to let it happen, but because of other dynamics. Shmuel Bar, ladies and gentlemen. And your partner is? Jeff Goldberg. I know how to pronounce it. <laughs> <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, Jeffrey Goldberg. Jeffrey, you're also arguing against the motion that Israel can live with a nuclear Iran. Um, you're a national correspondent for The Atlantic, a columnist for Bloomberg View. Uh, you're in a unique position here in that you've had more uh, exclusive interviews with Bibi Netanyahu, I think, than any other American journalist over the past several years. You've been in- inside the guy's head. W- where do you think he is in terms of his thinking seriously about his willingness to go to war over this? Is it a posture or is it a decision? I, I would say that he has many manifestations of a typical insincere politician. On the Iran question, I think he's actually sincere. What that means for policy, I don't know, but he is very sincerely gripped by this issue. Thank you, Jeffrey Goldberg. Ladies and gentlemen, our four debaters. So we go in three rounds, and first on to round one, opening statements from each debater in turn. And here to speak first for the motion, Reuven Pedetsur arguing that Israel can live with a nuclear Iran. He is a senior military affairs analyst with the Haaretz newspaper and a senior lecturer in political science at Tel Aviv University. Ladies and gentlemen, Reuven Pedetsur. Can Israel live with a nuclear Iran? The short answer is yes. Any questions? (laughs) Okay, but the real question is not this one. The real question, do we have another choice? And unfortunately, the answer is no. Despite all pressures and sanctions, in this decade, Iran will have nuclear weapons. So the question is for the Israeli policymakers, what then? What will be our policy in this case when Iran will have the weapons? The most effective and maybe the only way to deter Iran is to abandon our ambiguity, and to move, to move towards unconcealed nuclear deterrence. With new rules of the game, and the other side which should know what are the rules of the game, there will be red lines that the Iranians will understand it, and it should be clear to the other side what will happen. And then the Ayatollahs in Tehran will have to decide whether to launch their missiles when they know exactly what will happen. What will happen is that Iran will be destroyed and will go back to the Middle Ages. And I don't see any Iranian national interest that justify this cost. So I believe that, that we can deter them. I believe that the other team will use the argument of irrationality. We cannot deter this extremist Islam, uh, Muslim uh, ayatollahs. But I don't think this is the, the case. Because if we'll have a, a very clear policy of nuclear deterrence, then the chances that the other side will use the weapons are very slim or not existent. It seems from professional and sober analysis that the Iranian will, if, if we'll uh, learn their way of thinking, their culture, their history, they are going to act like real uh, uh, rational leaders. We should understand that the development of uh, the Iranian nuclear 
weapons is not against Israel. It's based on their, their experience during the war, the Iran-Iraq war in the 80s, not against Israel. And it's very important to understand it, what is the base of their thinking about their nuclear program. And ironically, possession of uh, nuclear weapons may moderate the Iranian leadership, exactly what happened with the Chinese leadership in 64, when they got the, the, the nuclear weapons, and they started acting like a rational state. And another, another example is India and Pakistan. After there were, they, they acquired the nuclear weapons in 98, about after a year, there was a, a Kargil crisis, and they act very rationally in order not to deteriorate the situation and using the nuclear war. Reuven Petitsur, your time is up. Thank you very much. Our motion is that Israel can live with a nuclear Iran, and here to speak against this motion, Jeffrey Goldberg. He is a national correspondent for The Atlantic and a columnist for Bloomberg View. Before joining The Atlantic, Goldberg was a Middle, Eastern correspond- a Middle East correspondent and the Washington correspondent for The New Yorker. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeffrey Goldberg. Uh, what we have right now in, in the world is, is, is a genuinely unprecedented situation, certainly unprecedented in the, in the post-World War II international order. We have a, a member state of the United Nations, the Islamic Republic of Iran, that actively calls for the destruction of another member state, that is Israel. And, and, and they're very, very clear and consistent on this subject, right from the beginning of the Islamic Republic. I'll give you a couple of examples. This is from the supreme leader of Iran, who, as his title suggests, is the supreme leader. He's the guy who sets the policy. Quote, the Zionist regime is a true cancer tumor on this region that should be cut off, and it definitely will be cut off. General Golam Reza Jalali, the former commander of the Revolutionary Guard Corps, said last August that, quote, the fact is, is that there is no other way but to stand firm and resist until Israel is destroyed. Finally, Mohammed Hassan Rahimian, who was a top aide to Khamenei, said in a January, tele- January 2010 television interview, quote, we have manufactured missiles that allow us, when necessary, to replace Israel in its entirety with a big holocaust. Uh, Mr. Rahimian is the deputy minister for subtlety on the par- uh, in the Iranian regime. Um, Iranian opposition to Israel's existence is not only ideological and rhetorical. We have to remember that in addition to actually calling for the destruction of the Jewish state, the Iranian regime works to, to destroy individual Jews. Hezbollah, the, the, the Lebanese terror group, is a proxy of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps. The rockets that it fires periodically into Israel are Iranian manufacture. Uh, the rockets that Hamas fires from Gaza are Iranian rockets. And, and let's not forget a, a, a fact I find very amazing, which is that the current defense minister of Iran is actually sought by international law enforcement authorities for direct complicity in the bombing of a Jewish community center in Argentina. Uh, so, so you're dealing with a regime that regularly calls for the annihilation of the Jewish state, that seeks to destroy and kill individual Jews, and, and which begs the question, what would be the impact on Middle East stability and on the safety of Israel if this regime, which seeks the annihilation, states very plainly it seeks the annihilation of the Jewish state, were to gain a weapon that would help it actually bring about that annihilation? Iran, the day after it gets a bomb, will probably not fire that single bomb at Israel. But it's also clear Israel in a post-nuclear Iran Middle East is going to have a very, very hard time surviving. Three quick reasons. 
the day after, there's going to be, the day after Iran goes nuclear, there's going to be an arms race, a nuclear arms race in the Middle East. It's, it's, it, President Obama has warned about this. He said very explicitly that, that a nuclear arms race in the world's most volatile region is inherently destabilizing. Second reason, Israel cannot survive in a Middle East in which America is a defeated and weakened ally. America is Israel's most important ally. If Iran trumps America, if Iran beats America by getting a nuclear weapon, it means that the Arab states that would pre- predisposed to make peace with Israel, and we know the peace process is semi-moribund anyway, they will align with Iran because Iran is the winner of that conflict. The third and most obvious point is Hamas and Hezbollah even now periodically fire large numbers of rockets at Israeli civilians. Imagine the power that they will have when they can fire those rockets under the protection of the Iranian nuclear umbrella. And a reminder of what's going on. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two against two, who are arguing it out over this motion, Israel can live with a nuclear Iran. You've heard two of the opening statements, and now on to the third, debating in support of the argument, James Dobbins. He is a former U.S. Assistant Secretary of State and Special Envoy under the Clinton and George W. Bush administrations. He is now Director of the International Security and Defense Policy Center at the Rand Corporation. Ladies and gentlemen, James Dobbins. Well, just to remind us what we're debating about, the proposition is, can Israel live with a nuclear Iran? Can Israel survive a nuclear Iran? The answer to that question is yes. You don't need to be absolutely certain it will survive, just that it's possible that it will survive. And I think both of the opposition will acknowledge that it's possible it'll survive. So, I mean, I think if you debate at that level, it's pretty clear There's almost nobody who thinks that Israel's demise will be automatic and certain. It's a question of risk. And so I think, in a sense, the real debate is, should Israel live with a nuclear Iran? And the answer is, not if they can help it, obviously. Nobody thinks a nuclear Iran is a good idea, and we're already doing a lot to try to prevent it. Um, And so the remaining question is, go to war to prevent uh, Iran from gaining a nuclear weapon. Uh, And I think, although that's not precisely what we're debating, the the issue does tend to revolve around that. Now, the threshold for saying yes, that we should go to war to prevent Iran from gaining a nuclear weapon, uh, there are two thresholds. One is efficacy, and one is unintended consequences. You need to look at both. In terms of efficacy, I think most Experts believe that an Israeli attack on Iran would set the program back by perhaps two years. What about the unintended consequences? In evaluating these consequences, one has to go back to the question of what is it that we, and for that matter most Israelis, fear about Iran? It's not Iranian invasion. It's Iranian subversion. It's Iran's capacity to appeal to militant Uh, elements within uh, neighboring populations uh, in order to galvanize their efforts both against their own regimes in many cases and against Israel. It's not that Iran is going to march across two intervening states and invade Israel. That is of concern. And the fear is that they would be emboldened and they'd do more of this. But I think you have to ask yourself, which kind of Iran would have more influence? with these dissident populations, an Iran that had nuclear weapons or an Iran that was uh, the victim of an unprovoked attack? Which of those two would give Iran 
greater influence and capacity to, to mobilize those kinds of populations. The argument that Iran would be emboldened by possessing a nuclear weapon is certainly, I think, a real danger, but it's far from a certainty. It's not the historic pattern. You know, our major problems with the Soviet Union and, and particularly with China occurred before they had nuclear weapons. We had nuclear weapons. They didn't. Once they got nuclear weapons, we didn't have any more wars. Now, we had lots of confrontations, but they were eventually diffused. Both North Korea and Pakistan do behave irresponsibly on occasion, uh, but there is a certain stability in their relations with India, North Korea's relations with South Korea. There haven't been conflicts in either case. And I think if you listen to Jeff's list of all the things they're doing, you'd have to ask, well, what the hell else could they do that they're not already doing? And I think the answer is uh, not much. Thank you, James Dobbins. Our motion is that Israel can live with a nuclear Iran. And now our final debater, who will be speaking against the motion, Shmuel Barr. He is the director of studies at the Institute of Policy and Strategy in Herzliya. He is also a senior research fellow uh, for the International Institute for Nonproliferation Studies. He served for 30 years in the Israeli government. Ladies and gentlemen, Shmuel Barr. Now, the arguments that have brought up the rational actor model, which I've already made some remark as a historian about, and the idea that deterrence works, and the other, the Cold War pa uh, paradigm can be applied. I would argue that we have to look at both of these assumptions in a completely different manner. First of all, the rational actor model. Somebody, not me, McNamara, said that Castro was a rational man, Khrushchev was a rational man, Kennedy was a rational man, and three rational men almost brought their nations into utter destruction. In other words, rational people sometimes do things, or the dynamics between rational people, rational leaders, sometimes leads to things which are not rational. Now to the Cold War paradigm. The Cold War paradigm, let's define what it was. It was bilateral, a paradigm which from a certain stage had mutually assured destruction, with each party having a, uh, a second strike capability. It was with levels of intelligence that when these, both of the United States and Soviet Union acquired that capability, the second strike capability, they also had satellites in the sky, so they had a reasonable picture of what was going on in the silos of the respective enemies. And there was also a perception of a taboo after Hiroshima. Now, when we're talking about a nuclear Iran, we have to understand we are talking about a polynuclear Middle East. A Shiite, nuclear Shiite Iran is going to be perceived by the Sunni countries as something that cannot be countenanced, that they are going to have to acquire their own nuclear weapons. In a polynuclear Middle East where every country has a very small arsenal, they do not have mutually assured destruction. They have a sort of arsenal which is use it or lose it. If we are attacked, then we won't have a second chance. We are going to have multiple nuclear states with these small arsenals with very low levels of intelligence. They won't have satellite intelligence or very clear picture of what the real intentions of their enemy uh, are. So all to put together, uh, we are talking about a very volatile region. We're talking about a possibility that not because uh, Khomeini gets up in the morning and says, oh, what a lovely day, isn't it a great day to drop a bomb? But because he, the Iranians do a nuclear alert, the Saudis don't know whether it's uh, directed against them, Israel sees Saudi Arabia and, and Iran and Turkey on nuclear alert, everybody goes on DEFCON, and uh, things get out of hand because none of these countries have the capability to control this spiral of escalation even if we say it's low probability, but low probability, high consequence. 
we can say, oh, there's a 10% possibility that this will result in nuclear confrontation. Well, 10% probability of total destruction is something that you have to think about. Thank you very much. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. And now we go on to round two, where the debaters address each other directly and answer questions from you in the audience and from me. We have two teams of two, uh, James Dobbins and Rovan Petitsur, um, who are arguing for the motion that Israel can live with a nuclear Iran. Their argument is that much as um, the U.S. learned to live with a nuclear China, uh, Israel can do the same, that it's not desirable. They're not saying that. But they're also saying it doesn't mean that the sky is necessarily falling. Um, they're saying that the Iranians will not want a nuclear war any more than the Israelis. And by the way, they say that attacking Iran to destroy its nuclear program would only strengthen Iran's influence and make it harder to contain than ever. Jeffrey Goldberg and Shmuel Bar arguing against the motion, saying the risks to Israel are unacceptable. They are de- depicting drastic uh, consequences for Israel if a state that hates it as much as the Iranians say they hate Israel would get its hands on a nuclear weapon, could set off an arms race in the region, nukes could reach terrorist hands. And bottom line, two or three bombs alone could destroy all of Israel. It's, it's not the Cold War folks in that sense. So those are essentially the arguments that the two sides are making. And I just want to uh, start off the questions by getting to this notion of the, um, of the moderating influence of having a nuclear weapon that Ruven Petitsur uh, talked about. He talked about the fact that when, when China and when Mao got the bomb uh, in 1964, uh, that he became a lot less, quote-unquote, crazy, uh, that he became a lot more sober-minded as a geopolitical thinker and strategist, because, presumably because of the stakes. And I just want to put that to the other side uh, and take it to Jeffrey Goldberg first. Well, I, first I would say that there's only a limited amount of knowledge we can gain um, by analogizing the Chinese, Chinese Communist Party of 1965 with the mullahs who rule the theocratic authoritarian state of Iran in 2013. I don't want to stretch this to the breaking point, and I feel like that, that does stretch it to the breaking point. Yes, it's possible. It's possible that Iran will become suddenly a responsible party. But Iran's specific goal is to export the Islamic Revolution throughout the Muslim world. Its specific goal is to destroy Israel. Its specific goal is to liberate Bahrain. A country that has all of these goals, which gains a nuclear weapon, is not going to suddenly say, all right, now that we have the weapon that will finally allow us to do all of the things that we've been telling you we want to do, we're not going to do it. Okay, Ruben Petitor, Jeffrey Goldberg saying that Iran is not China of 1964 in significant ways. China is not alone. Let's talk about India, Pakistan. Let's see that... uh, South Korea lives under the shadow of North Korea nuclear umbrella. It happens to every leadership that acquired... And, and what do you think happens to them? And I want to take your answer back to Jeffrey. Because they know what is the, the price of using the, the, the weapons. There is no winning in nuclear war. Okay, so Jeffrey, Ruben gave you the logic behind his, his analogy of China, that the, the gravity of the, the damage, the destruction that the weapons can do t- will change any leader's thinking. First of all, let me come back to Pakistan, because I've done a lot of reporting on Pakistan. Pakistan is moving away from minimal deterrence. We know that Pakistan now is mating its weapons and putting them on mobile launchers. So I I, I would caution not to use Pakistan as a great model for where we're going. But but let 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 me just also say this. I think we're actually also talking about the wrong thing. The thing that I worry about more is accidental escalation leading to an all out nuclear war. Think of it this way. Think of it this way Hamas fires rockets into Israel, Israel fires back, Hamas escalates. 
Israel then escalates. Imagine if Iran was in the picture with a nuclear weapon right now. No, just imagine this. Imagine that Iran, in response to Israel's escalation, decides to move warheads closer to their missile launching sites. And the American satellites see this. You'll be living in a Middle East of launch on warning. You'll be living in a situation in which the Israeli prime minister is going to say, the Iranians are moving their missiles to strike us in defense of Hamas. What do I do? Let Jim Dobbins respond to that. The United States was just as vulnerable as Israel. We had 24,000 nuclear weapons locked in on us. They would have damaged us just as badly as half a dozen on Israel. The the result would have been the same, and it probably would have been worse for the rest of the world. Indeed, it it, it would have been catastrophic for the world as a whole. Uh, And we lived with that for 40 years. And all of these problems of launch on warning. Now, I I quite take the fact that that, that these regimes don't have the control mechanisms, the command and control, or even the technologies that will that will make this a safer world. And so I, you know, I fully acknowledge that there's an element of risk there. I fully acknowledge that Israel shouldn't live with a nuclear Iran if there's a better option. I'm just arguing that there may not be a better option. Um, Yeah, well, first of all, regarding uh, China, which was going through a process when it acquired nuclear weapons, China was already moderating its revolutionary zeal. Iran is going through what we would call the second... uh, generation of the revolution. I mean, we're already in the sort of Robespierre-style uh, 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 second generation of the, of the Iranian revolution, going back to the pure concepts of the revolution. But that really isn't the real issue here. The real issue here, I think, is that analogies are absolutely irrelevant. Secondly, the dynamics of multilateral nuclear states is completely different to the dynamics of two main Let powers. me remind you, it was not bilateral. It was, it was bilateral. trilateral. No, it, no, no, China it, no, was no, there China, from 64. China never had the strategic capabilities of the Soviet Union, and the Chinese didn't have the missile capabilities at the time, and most of the Cold War was clearly a uh, Warsaw Pact against, the NATO, against NATO. It was clearly bilateral. So it doesn't matter, though, because we're not talking, and uh, as a historian, I find it difficult to discuss analogies because uh, we think that God is in the details. And the details of the Middle East are that uh, we will have multi-polynuclear Middle East where we will have a Sunni world which is going to see uh, Shiite nuclear power as an existential threat to the Sunni world. All right, let me, let me put a different, uh, bring in a different strain of the argument here. Uh, to the side that's ar- arguing that Israel can live with a nuclear Iran, your opponents have pointed out that the specific rhetoric of the Iranian regime has discussed a deep aspiration to see Israel gone, wiping Israel off the map. Why not take that absolutely literally? I mean, I think what... A benign explanation, and I'm not arguing that, there, that one should necessarily accept a benign explanation, is that the Iranians are simply arguing for a multi-ethnic state encompassing all of historic Israel to include the West Bank, which is the, the Hamas position, for instance. It's not that the Israelis should go away. It's that Israel should go away and that a multi-ethnic state encompassing both Palestinians and Israelis should continue to exist. Interestingly enough, there are extremists, but 
uh, viable parties in Israel who also think that the Israeli state should encompass all of the West Bank. Okay. So, the difference is that they think it should be a Jewish state, whereas the uh, Iranians so, you know, would argue it should be a multi-ethnic just state. Just very briefly on that. What, what happened was I, Israel's enemies realized that talking about pushing the Jews into the sea was not really a great PR strategy. So what they did was they changed the language and they said, we don't want to push the Jews in the sea. We just want to get rid of Israel as a Jewish homeland and let everybody live there together. But then they also say, as the Ayatollahs say, all the Jews who aren't from there have to go back to where they're from. The Jews should go back. The Jews from Germany should go back to Germany. The Jews from Poland should go back to Poland. But Jeffrey, I think what Jim's saying is is that you could interpret the, and I'm not saying this facetiously, the Iranians are, they're not saying we will kill you. They're saying we want you dead which is not exactly the same uh, thing, I, which has to do with... We, don't, we, 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 want, we want a lot of you dead, and we certainly want your country and your dream of a Jewish homeland dead. I'm going to come to you Israel in the audience. Israel will live our time. <clears throat> I'm going to come to you in the audience for questions uh, shortly. I just want you to get ready. So as you're getting ready to do that, I just want to go back to the side that's arguing that Israel cannot live with a, a nuclear weapon and point out uh, that your opponent, Jim Dobbins, made the point. He, he asked, what actually would the Iranians be able to start doing that they're not already doing. What, what would be different if they had a nuclear weapon? Jeffrey Goldberg. They, they have limitless escalation. Like I said, if Hamas has the protection of the nuclear umbrella, the Iranian nuclear umbrella, it can be much bolder than it is today. Jim Dobbins, right it was now, your point. Let's hear your response to it. Nuclear weapons are extremely useful to deter people from using other nuclear weapons or from destroying their regime. There was one option that the United States would lose if Iran had a nuclear weapon, which it's lost with respect to North Korea, and that is to invade and overthrow the regime. But that would be off the table. We might do other things to them. We've got 5,000 nuclear weapons. They've got two or three. There's almost nothing we could do to them short of threatening to overthrow the regime, which would cause them to use their nuclear weapons. And I think Israel and, and, uh, has never had the capacity of invading and overthrowing the regime. Uh, and Israel's not going to use its nuclear weapons to respond to rocket attacks from Hamas, whether Iran has nuclear weapons or not. And Iran is not going to start a nuclear war to protect Hamas. Jeffrey Goldberg. Jim Dobbins is right. I mean, he's right. The day after Iran gets a nuke, you know, chances are Israel will still survive. I mean, and, 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 it's, and it's a remote possibility that Israel could survive two or three or four years. But so I really do believe... A remote possibility? I really do believe that it, uh, Iran getting a nuclear weapon... Whoa, Jeffrey, you said two or three years Israel would survive? I think... Look... I believe that every three to four, let's say every three to four years, there's another confrontation between Israel and one of Iran's proxies on its northern border or its southern border. That is nothing the to do. The next time there's one of these conflicts, I'm afraid that they're going to spin out of control. So, so when Jim Dobbins said this debate isn't literally saying Israel can survive, you actually are taking it literally that you think Israel cannot survive. Oh, I read the instruction sheet wrong. Yeah. So that, oh, really? <laughs> um, no, I, I believe that. I believe that it makes it that it makes it. Look, Israel, why does Israel survive and thrive now? It survives because it's an immigration nation. Who's going to immigrate to to a country that's on a hair-trigger nuclear alert that lives under this Iranian nuclear umbrella? I don't see the Middle East that's polynuclear as a hospitable place for a small state that already has multiple dysfunctions. I agree, it's not a nice neighborhood. There's no no automaticity to the idea that, that, that... that Iran's gaining nuclear weapons is going to proliferate. It's a risk, like these other things. And it's, and it's a risk that the U.S. takes seriously, which is one of the reasons why it's uh, threatened to bomb Iran. Let's hear your questions. Front row, gentlemen, right here. I just want to follow up on Mr. Goldberg's 
uh, line of thinking, which is the economic analysis, which is how many thousands of people will actually, human capital, will leave Israel? How much actual capital, billions of dollars? Who is going to actually invest in Israel, given the fact there is no margin for error? And not only do you have explicitly nuclear weapons pointed at you, but you also have the danger of dirty bombs and technology transfer okay. within the, country, within the city itself. question, and it was really well done, let me just you know, say. I mean, That's the model. Go ahead, know, Jim Dobbins. I mean, the United States had a peer competitor that had, in many cases, more nuclear weapons than we did. People invested. We had huge immigration. People went to New York and Washington, and they knew that they were going to be exterminated if there was a war. They were right in the hair trigger. Whatever, wherever else the bombs felt, they were going to fell there. Did it stop building? Did it stop immigration? Uh, I I think it is absolutely ridiculous and absurd to compare a situation in which a country which uh, has declared that it wants to exterminate the state of Israel has nuclear weapons as opposed to the balance which existed post-Cuba between the United States and the Soviet Union, even though they both had nuclear weapons. uh, You can make those analogies, but they have absolutely nothing to do with reality. Uh, And I I, I think that it would certainly have an effect. By the way, an interesting poll in Israel uh, was taken, and people were asked, will you leave the country if uh, Iran gets a nuclear weapon? It turned out that whereas somewhere around 30% of the Jews said they would think about it, 70% of the Israeli Arabs said they would think about it. All right. You know, you're... The part of your question that was really good that you were getting on your follow-up didn't get asked. So, go, Mike, is back to you. Well, first of all, there's obviously an issue of capital, which has been invested in Israel. Who is going to actually invest continuously in a country where you have a, the threat of existential okay. destruction? Do you want to take that, Ruben? I mean, it's a good question. Who is investing in a country when each there are 60,000 missiles aimed at? Who invests in Israel these days? I, you, you had a lot of subtext there. And so can you draw out what your point was? I believe that most of the Israelis will stay in Israel, even if there will be a nuclear... Is your point that Israel is already kind of a nasty neighborhood and there are already yes. Hamas and rockets landing and people are already investing I in I don't it? like our okay. neighbors, but... Let's go to another question. Can Ma'am, right there. Hi, Kanta Ahmed. I'm a Muslim author. I would say what's different and what you're arguing clearly is that the new ingredient is virulent political Islamism, which both of you have touched upon, which changes the equation, not just the uh, polynuclear conflict. I think that's what makes this so much more dangerous than anything um, history has previously seen in terms of the Cold War. Would you agree and could you expand? Well, Jim Dobbins. First of all, I don't, you know, Iran has been a virulently Islamist state for 30 years now, 40 years, 79. 79. Uh, It's probably a little less virulent now than it was, but it's still a virulent Islamist state. Uh, And yet it hasn't behaved uh, irresponsibly in the sense of doing anything that endangers its existence. The regime has done lots of outrageous things, but none of them threatened its existence. Um, Iran, in fact, hasn't invaded anybody for 500 years, so it's not as if they have territorial claims. They're promoting subversion. Um, They're uh, engaging in terrorism, and I would anticipate that they would continue to do so. 
At no point has either American or Israeli nuclear weapons deterred them from that. I don't think there's any level of that that they could engage in that would result in a nuclear strike on our part. And therefore, I don't think that their having nuclear weapons would particularly affect that kind of behavior, which would, we would continue to have to respond to forcefully and on a, uh, at times and certainly rigorously, uh, but I don't think it would be notably harder. It's certainly a challenge. Well, well, you know, to answer the question, the saving grace, one of the saving graces of of the Cold War was that that the Soviets were atheists. They didn't envision uh, this world as simply the anteroom to a superior afterlife. And so I do think you have to take into account, not just with Islam, but fundamentalist Jewish parties in Israel, I wouldn't want to see controlling nuclear weapons. We're entering the age of political Islamism in the Middle East. The Muslim Brotherhood is in charge of Egypt today. In another year, it's going to be in charge of Syria. Um, ask yourself, I'll you know, answer this question with a question to the audience in a way, which is, would you be comfortable having the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt be in control of nuclear weapons? Would you be comfortable having the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria be in charge of, of nuclear weapons? And for that matter, would you, would, you, would you be happy if the chief rabbis of Israel had nuclear weapons? They are. I, they are. I don't, no, the chief rabbis of Israel do not have nuclear weapons. Uh, the, you know, I, I don't want people who think that this world is simply a prelude to the next to, to, to help bring us there sooner. I want to remind you that we're in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion, Israel can live with a nuclear Iran. Sir, there you go. Hi, my name is William Grassi. I just want to preface this by saying that as a young man, I had an opportunity to to study for a year at the Hebrew University. And recently, I've had uh, two opportunities to visit Iran. And and the question is um, uh, really that Iran could be our natural ally, is our natural ally in the region. And if there were 10 years of detente, uh, the theocrats would be thrown out and there would be massive change. These are not fixed entities. Things can change. And the follow-up question is, if there were a comprehensive settlement to the Israeli-Palestinian problem, wouldn't that also take the wind out of the sail of the Iranian animosity Okay. Yes, I I don't know. It seems I'm in a sort of uh, cognitive dissonance here with some of those questions because uh, I read what is written in Iran. I read the material coming out of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards. I have no doubt that most, you know, Iran is probably the most pro-American country in the Middle East after Israel, but it doesn't really matter. Because you may have noticed that not everywhere in the world does the public opinion of the people rule the country. There are many, many countries in the world, not only North Korea and places like that, where people may think one thing and uh, the regime is something else. And the more, uh, the more dictatorial the regime is, then the easier, easier it is to make sure that what people want isn't what they get. Now... Uh, yes, it is possible that over a period of decades, eventually, Iran will, uh, will get back to being uh, you know, a friend of America and a friend of everybody, and was a friend of Israel, was an ally of Israel. But what happens in between? And what does a regime do when it has a nuclear weapon and it does everything in order to enhance its position and to make sure that by enhancing its position abroad, it can also put down its opposition at home? Because who would dare intervene in Iran when Iran can do that sort of mischief abroad. The far side, uh, sir. Fred Baumgarten, a question for Mr. Dobbins. Uh, you've talked about Israel 
dealing with uncertainties rather than certainties. My question is, can you give us some metrics by which Israel can calibrate an appropriate reaction? So what, what are the red lines to living with a nuclear Iran, yeah. uh, Jim Dobbins? You know, I'm not sure that one can, you know, calculate exact levels of risk. I would certainly acknowledge that the, the risk of miscalculation and a nuclear uh, exchange uh, is higher if the p- countries have nuclear weapons than if they don't. It's high enough to be very concerned about. Um, and so, you know, going back to my proposition, it's it, Israel – uh, shouldn't have shouldn't have to live with a nuclear Iran if it has a better choice. I'm just arguing that there aren't better choices necessarily than those that we're already pursuing. There are ways that uh, that one can minimize the risk of escalation by the way one constructs and and uh, hides and uh, and disposes of one's nuclear forces. Uh, there are technical ways that one can avoid unauthorized use of these kinds of weapons. Uh, the United States, for instance, has sought to help Pakistan establish uh, a mechanism, physical mechanisms uh, and procedures that would make an unauthorized or accidental launch of a nuclear weapon more difficult. I'm not suggesting we necessarily get into such a relationship with Iran, but we might hope someone did. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, <laughs> where our motion is Israel can live with a nuclear Iran. And we are about to move on to round three, which will be brief closing statements from each debater in turn. And this is their last chance to try to influence your vote. Immediately after their closing statements, we'll have our second vote. And remember, it's the team that has moved your numbers the most in the course of the debate who will be declared our winner. On to then round three, closing statements. Our motion is Israel can live with a nuclear Iran. And here to summarize his position against the motion, Jeffrey Goldberg, national correspondent for The Atlantic and columnist for Bloomberg View. I want to just tell a very brief uh, story. Uh, In 1998, I was in Afghanistan, in in Kandahar, uh, when Osama bin Laden issued his first fatwa, the first big fatwa, the fatwa against crusaders and Jews. And I was with a bunch of people, Westerners, and we heard about this. And frankly, we, we, we laughed about it because it seemed crazy. Absolutely insane, uh, the, the audacity of it. And I, I learned three years later that very often when someone who says something that, that seems crazy says it over and over again, that it's, it's worth paying attention to. And so on my visits to Iran, uh, and I, I've been there a few times, I've talked to people in the, in the regime uh, about these subjects. I, I'll tell you one very brief encounter I had with a guy named Muhammad Ali Samadi, who was a leader of a group called the Seekers of Martyrdom, which actually sounds like a great name for a band, actually. Uh, <laughs> but their job at the time was to try to figure out how to kill Salman Rushdie. And, and, uh, but I talked to him about Israel, and, uh, and he, he said the following, which has always stayed with me. There are always infections, infections and diseases in man. In the world, there is an infection called international Jewry. And I listened to him, and I listened to the various leaders of the regime, and I've decided to take them seriously. I think in the post-9-11 age, we have to take religious fundamentalists who say they want to kill you seriously. I think it is possible to overlearn overlearn the lessons of Jewish history, to overlearn the lessons of the Holocaust. But I'm even more afraid of underlearning the lessons of Jewish history. I believe that the Iranian regime is serious about wanting to find a way to destroy the state of Israel. I believe that if they get a nuclear weapon, they will go a great distance to achieving that goal. 
And therefore, I, I ask you to vote against this resolution, vote against this motion. Thank you. Thank you, Jeffrey Goldberg. Our motion is Israel can live with a nuclear Iran. And here to summarize his position in support of the motion, Reuven Peretzur, a senior military affairs analyst with Haaretz. And I, I have no illusions. The Ayatollahs are not uh, lovers of Zion, but they are very rational, and they want to survive, and they want to rule their country. And at the end, they, they are not going to use their weapons. We can live with a nuclear run. I live in Tel Aviv. This is the, the center of the target. And I didn't ask my four daughters and my grandchildren to leave Israel, because I believe that we can leave Israel and survive more than three years. In the 50s, uh, at the end of the 50s, when uh, there was uh, the threat of the Soviet Union, people in the States started building atomic shelters in their backyard. And Kennedy ran for president in promising that he, he is going to build atomic shelters for the whole population. I hope that we, we are not going to start building atomic shelters in Tel Aviv. A nuclear Iran is not the end of Zionism. Thank you. Thank you, Reuven Petitsur. Our motion is Israel can live with a nuclear Iran, and here summarizing his position against the motion, Shmuel Bar, he is Director of Studies at the Institute of Policy and Strategy in Herzliya, Israel. Thank you. Um, I want to just reiterate that rationality of every single individual involved in a conflict is not a guarantee that the conflict will end uh, or will develop uh, in a rational manner or in a way which uh, uh, everybody would be happy with. Now, you know, we talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis, etc. Actually, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, all of these rational people uh, were very, very close to a, an Armageddon of that which was uh, according to the capabilities of that period. Uh, during the Cold War, there were a number of instances where the United States and the Soviet Union, with all of their command and control capabilities, with all of their intelligence, uh, actually came to some uh, very, uh, um, uh, very dangerous uh, points which were avoided because the leaderships had a means of communication. Now, the level of hostility in the Middle East does not augur well for direct communications between not even, not only Israel-Iran, but Iran-Saudi Arabia, and, and we're talking about a Middle East in which countries are falling apart and that sub-countries may acquire the nuclear weapons that they will inherit from the countries which are disintegrating. This is a very dangerous area to have nuclear weapons. Ultimately, uh, the question is not, well, can you do anything about it? If you can't do anything about it, live with it. But uh, you have to do something about it. You've got to find a way. And believe me, there are more than one ways to skin a cat, even a Persian cat. Thank you, Shmuel Abar. The motion, Israel can live with a nuclear Iran. And here to summarize his position in support of the motion, James Dobbins. He's director of the International Security and Defense Policy Center at RAND. Well, I'm, I'm old enough to remember um, when in, uh, in elementary school we were taught to hide under our desks under nuclear Duck attack. Duck and cover. Duck and cover. And, you know, sirens would go off and we would hide under our desks. So, you know, some level of fear and concern is natural enough in a society that faces that kind of threat. And if you can avoid the threat, by all means, do so if you have a better choice. We didn't have a better choice at the time. 
Reuven has suggested that uh, nuclear Iran will not be the end of the Jewish state. And uh, I'd have to say most Israelis agree with him. Uh, the Times of uh, Israel uh, published a poll, uh, a poll done in the context of their election campaign, in which they asked the uh, Israeli populace what were the issues that, most, that created most anxiety, what were they most worried about. Was Iran the number one issue? No. Economic issues were their dominant concern. Was Iran the number two issue? No. Actually, and perhaps rather healthily, the deterioration uh, in relations with the Palestinians was the number two concern. Was Iran the number three concern? No. The third concern was the state of their education system. Iran was the fourth uh, in this list of six, with 12% of the Israeli population thinking that the Iranian threat was their principal concern. Thank you, James Dobbins. And that concludes our closing statements. I want to uh, do this. It's, uh, it's a contentious topic tonight, but I want to congratulate our debaters for the quality of debate they brought here. Okay, so remember, we've had you vote twice, and the team whose numbers moves by the largest percentage point is declared our winner. So let's find out who you decided won this debate. The motion, Israel can live with a nuclear Iran, before the debate, in polling you in the live audience, 25% of you agreed with the motion, 35% were against it. The winner is the team that has changed the numbers the most from the first vote to the second. The second vote now, the team arguing for the motion, they went from 25% to 37%. That is a 12% increase. That is the number to beat. Now let's look at the team against the motion. Israel can live with a nuclear Iran. They went from 35% to 55%. They went up 20%. That's the winning side. The team arguing against the motion, Israel can live with a nuclear Iran, has won our debate. You can listen to the full, unedited version of this debate on the Intelligence Squared U.S. app, which is now available in the iTunes Store and on Google Play, or on our website at intelligencesquaredus.org. You can vote there, you can watch past debates, stream live debates, and ask me, John Donvan, your questions, all through the app. Our next debate takes place August 9th. We're live at the Aspen Institute. The topic will be ISIS. Learn more about us at iq2us.org, and we will be announcing our debate schedule for fall 2015 in the next few weeks. You can hear about it first. Subscribe to our newsletter at iq2us.org for updates on all of our debate programming. And if you have a debate idea, send us an email or stop by our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash iq2us. Thanks for listening, and remember, think twice. Think twice.